This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Okay, it's all about, when you think about the narrative of this pandemic, how it's evolved, how it's had an arc since the beginning. I think now where we are in the narrative is the Delta variant and vaccinations, uh, getting people vaccinated, getting who vaccinated, how young, how old. Uh, It's now turning towards the very young as we think about getting back to school. And there's lots of discussions and arguments to be made on both sides. Dr. Elizabeth Mead joins us. She is medical director of pediatric quality and safety at the Swedish Health services joining us on the phone from seattle uh dr me thanks so much for joining us here i guess you know lots of parts of the country are just about going back to school i know california starts a week from monday uh here on the east coast it's, it's right after labor day but the discussion is who should get vaccinated as we think about back to school should we be should we be getting kids vaccinated and how young you know i think absolutely what we recommend is that kids 12 and over who are eligible for the vaccine get the vaccine and get it soon you know the reality is that it takes several weeks between the couple of doses and then full immunity two weeks after that second dose and so for many kids who haven't gotten the vaccine yet we're already sort of talking about post going back to school dates for them to be fully fully protected the uh, cover of the new issue of bloomberg business week is all about and the cover story of today's big take we're going to talk about it in just a few minutes it's all about vaccine mandates for kids and there's some pretty startling uh statistic in here uh the rollout of shots to millions of kids ages 12 to 17 um, although they account for 7.5 percent of the u.s population it's really lagged only 43 percent of that group has received their first dose uh why is that dr mead why are we seeing this reluctance from parents to inoculate their kids when uh, we think about vaccines in the early parts of our lives, that's when we get the most vaccines. Yeah, that's right. You know, I think there are a couple of factors that play into that. And so one of those factors, I think, is that we know that older adults uh, tend to get sicker, right? And so we know that although kids can get very sick, can end up in the ICU, can die from COVID, can have long COVID and all those other complications that we think about, the rates of that happening in children and teens are significantly lower than in older adults. And so I think that for many people who are high risk, you know, they want to get the vaccine for themselves as soon as possible. And they may think differently about it when it comes to their kid. I think the other factor here is that we know it's hard to make a healthcare decision for yourself. And it's even harder to make it for someone else. And so people, I think, are, are feeling like they want to make sure they have all of their questions answered before they proceed with vaccines for their children. So, Dr. Mead, what do we know about uh, how young we can uh, we can give this vaccine to a person? How young can they be? You mentioned 12 and older. How about some of the younger kids? Yeah, so at this point, it's approved for 12 and over. We anticipate that it will be approved for younger children, probably down to age five, potentially down to age two by kind of early to mid-fall. And I know that a lot of parents are desperately waiting for those dates to get their younger children vaccinated. And the reality of this pandemic is that I think even for families where everyone who's eligible has had the vaccine, so everybody 12 and older and then the adults in the household, many of those families still have younger children who are not yet eligible. And so I think it's hard to sort of feel like we can get back to life as normal for our families when we still have one or more young children that aren't yet able to get the vaccine who are living in our houses. 
Doctor, back in May, Dr. Fauci, the nation's top infectious disease doctor, he said that by the first quarter of 2022, uh, we're going to have, quote, enough information regarding safety and uh, immunogenicity, you can help me out with that one if you want, Mm -hmm. to be able to vaccinate children at any age. Does do you agree with that timeline that in, in the first part of, of next year, we're going to be able to vaccinate uh, newborns uh, to uh, to two-year-olds? Yeah, I think that rings true for the most part. I mean, um, we know that there are ongoing trials down to age six months for multiple of the vaccines. And so we anticipate having quite a bit of safety data, even down to young infants. I, I would guess that it will be very similar to the flu shot. And so for the Mm. flu shot, we start giving that at six months and older. So I'm not really convinced that we're going to be vaccinating newborns against COVID anytime soon. But I think those young infants kind of six months and older will certainly be in the next wave. What do we know about dosage? I was surprised when when my son got his first flu shot that he got two of them separated a few months apart, whereas I only got one. And it was the he got double dosage, basically. So for that first year, for any child who's seven or younger, for that first year, we recommend getting two doses a month apart to really kind of stimulate the immune system. Because for many vaccines, that first dose sort of primes you. And then that second dose is really what confers the full immunity. And after that, we consider that yearly dose sort of a booster. And so it may be the same with with COVID. You know, we're already talking about potentially having boosters for high-risk groups that have already received the two vaccine series. So I think it will be probably fairly similar to that. Dr. Mead, just quickly, do you think schools will mandate vaccinations? I don't see that happening personally until they have full FDA approval okay. for the age groups that we're talking about. And so I think at that point, we can really have that discussion. But in my mind, it is unlikely to happen until we reach that milestone. And hopefully that will be in the next few months. So do you think full FDA approval, just in the last 30 seconds here, we could see that by next school year? So that next school year, they'll I, be mandated? I think it's very possible. And, you know, so much of this is dependent on what is happening in the United States. And that has been very changeable. So we really have had to be nimble with our guidance. And I think that will continue to ring true as we enter the winter and and then spring next year. Dr. Mead, we like talking to people who are in hospitals, uh, who are on the ground, who are talking to patients, who are working with patients just to get an update from the front lines. Are you seeing younger and younger patients in your hospital than at other points during the pandemic? We really are. You know, I'm a, I'm a hospital pediatrician, so I only work in the hospital. I see newborns up to 18 who are sick, who are hospitalized. And I will tell you that throughout the pandemic, although the rates are lower than in adults and especially older adults, we have seen young infants, kids and teens who are hospitalized, who are very ill with COVID, who are in the ICU, kids who are having long COVID symptoms. So although the rates are lower, I think it's really important to reinforce for people, this is still a disease that can cause really critical illness in newborns all the way through those, those children and teenage years. So Dr. Mee, what are, when you do see these patients and you know, are, are most of them unvaccinated? And if so, what are some of the typical reasons that you're finding uh, in your hospital? You know, the majority of patients that are showing up to the hospital that are very sick, that are ending up in the ICU with the Delta variant in particular, are unvaccinated. So we know that the vast majority of those patients have not received the vaccine. And I think that's such an important point because we know that although people who are vaccinated can transmit the Delta variant, they are vastly less likely to end up with severe symptoms in the hospital, in the ICU, or to die from COVID, right? So what we're seeing across the country is that it seems to be that skewing now to younger people who are not vaccinated. So teens and also young adults, people in their 20s and 30s who have not received the vaccine, who are ending up in the hospital and who are very, very, very sick from the Delta variant in particular.
if I think back to how I felt at the beginning of this pandemic and the way that I spoke with friends, parents of young kids, we always said to each other, hey, this could be so much worse. This could be something that is really a big danger to our kids. And I'm wondering yeah. now if we've gotten to that point, what do we know about how dangerous the Delta variant is to kids? Is it more dangerous than the earlier or, or, or the earlier versions of COVID-19 that we saw here in the U.S. In, in March, April, May of last year? You know, the comprehensive data on that really remains to be seen. So we don't have good national data at this point on what the actual sort of increase in rates of, of serious illness are. We do know that it is still thankfully more rare in kids and teens, and we're very grateful for that because that's not something we typically see in pediatrics when it comes to infectious disease, right? Usually children get much sicker than adults, and so this seems to be different than that, which is good. But we know that rates of infection are skyrocketing. So we had about 72,000 pediatric cases in the last week. That was almost double the number from the prior week, and it was five times the number that we were seeing during the weeks in June. And so as we start to see the numbers of sick children and children who are positive for COVID going up, we know that those total numbers of kids who are really sick who are ending up in the hospital will also go up. So, Dr. Mead, just give us a sense of how things are in Seattle. Here in New York City, we're seeing cases go up, even though we have very high vaccination rates. What's the, how are things in Seattle? You know, unfortunately, across the country, we are starting to see those bed numbers go up. So we're seeing hospitals start to fill again. We're seeing the number of cases go up. We're seeing the number of ICU admissions go up. There's an estimation that there's about 50,000 people across the country in hospital beds with COVID right now. And so we are very, very concerned. I mean, these are numbers that we were seeing sort of at the height of the pandemic, and we really had gotten better for some time as people started to get vaccinated. And now with the Delta variant and that increased contagion and transmissibility, we're seeing those numbers go up again. So what, what I would just say is we know for certain the absolute best way to protect yourself and the other people who live with you or who you have close contact with from the Delta variant is to get vaccinated because we know that will dramatically decrease your risk of ending up in the hospital or dying from COVID. Dr. Mead, just in the last 30, 30, 40 seconds that we have, what do you tell parents who come to you concerned that their kids under 12 can't yet be vaccinated and they're concerned about them actually getting COVID? I have so many parents who have that concern who are just desperate for the vaccine to be approved for their younger children. We have a six-year-old in my house who's not yet eligible, who we can't wait until he's able to get the vaccine. And I think that's actually the majority of parents that I talk to is who are really saying, you know, the older kids are, are vaccinated or I'm vaccinated. I just can't wait until my younger kids can get this so that we can really feel like our whole bubble and our whole family is protected. And my great hope is that that will happen really within the next couple of months. It certainly seems to be the direction that things are going. Dr. Elizabeth Mead, Medical Director of Pediatric Quality and Safety at Swedish Health Services, joining us on the phone from Seattle. A big thank you for joining us this afternoon. The new issue of Bloomberg Businessweek magazine, it is available on newsstands now and at Bloomberg.com slash Businessweek. The cover story, also today's big take, it's all about vaccine mandates for kids. Is it the next big back to school fight? Children have to get vaccinated for less urgent threats and it works. So why not with COVID? That's the big question. Joining us now is Joel Weber, editor at Bloomberg Business Week. He joins us on the remote from Massachusetts. Riley Griffin is healthcare reporter for Bloomberg News. Uh, she joins us from New York City. Uh, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Um, I'm Joel, I wanna start with you. Uh, I, I was really surprised to see the lack of vaccine uptake in kids who are ages 12 to 17, uh, only 43% have received their first dose. Why is that? Yeah, there's definitely um, a sense of, of, of apathy and it has, it's gonna have some um, 
serious uh, implications, I think, um, in the next weeks and months, especially as we're dealing with this Delta surge. You know, that apathy is it's sort of multifaceted, and, and some of that we go into in, in the story. Um, the fact that kids haven't been quite as susceptible yet is to COVID is, is I think, one of the driving reasons. Um, there's also, I think, a, a feeling that the, the vaccines currently have emergency youth author authorization. They don't have the full FDA blessing. So I think there's still some vaccine hesitancy ar around it. Um, and we've seen, you know, other countries even take slightly different approaches to how um, kids are supposed to be vaccinated. So I think there, that all creates a little bit of a, a fog that has um, led to, to a slow adoption. And, and I think where, where Riley and Susie King, King's story goes here is an important one because as we're just seeing now with New York mandating vaccines for, for restaurants, for instance, in the not so distant future, we could very easily see schools mandating vaccines. And one of the main questions that um, Riley, I'd like you to pose to you is, you know, look, like kids get vaccinated for all sorts of things that are far less urgent than COVID. So could we potentially see schools mandating, mandating that, mandating COVID uh, immunization? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's a great question. And it's one that we've seen play out and there's precedent for. I mean, educators are having a debate on their hands right now as to whether to implement, implement mandates requiring COVID-19 vaccines as they routinely do for measles, polio, and other diseases, or to punt because of politics and let parents decide. This has really become so political, um, in part because of that emergency use authorization that you described. But once there's a full in approval in place, I have no doubt that schools, um, at the request of states, are going to put similar requirements in place. Um, this is really just a part of the bedrock of our education, education system, and any parent listening knows that to be true. Um, and these mandates persist even though they've been so successful that the risk of contracting some of the illnesses they cover is almost non-existent. You know, one I like to put in perspective is that the last U.S. case of polio dates back to 1979, and yet all 50 states in the District of Columbia require mm. kids to get vaccinated with a polio shot before going to school. Riley, you know, I fear that this is going to get really, really ugly and really personal and really localized. Do we have any evidence or do we have any precedent here for a COVID-19 requirement? Because we've got a lot of states, I'm thinking in the South and the West, they're going back to school. If they're, they're not already back, they're going back in the next week or two. Yeah, so what we have right now is a legal vacuum because we've never seen before a mandate put in place for an emergency use authorized vaccine. That's not to say states can't do it. They are just a little hesitant to wade out into those tumultuous waters. But let me take you back in history for a moment because in 1905, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled to say that mandates are allowed that states can require vaccination and that individual liberties are not absolute that the average person cannot say hey in the face of a public health pandemic we are going to reject a vaccine mandate and the first mandate actually for school kids goes back even further to 1855 so there's a great deal of precedent um, Schools themselves know that this could likely be coming. I've spoken with many administrators 
who said they're just waiting to get more parents on board. They want to bolster trust and confidence, especially while we still have that EUA status. How do they tell you, Riley, that they're getting parents on board? Because we probably have a lot of parents who themselves are not vaccinated, who are saying, no way, no how, when this thing becomes available for my kid. Well, one thing they're doing is turning to community organizers, those in the community that people trust. Um, Another thing is going to be waiting for additional data. We've got data on the under-12 cohort coming this fall. We'll see data from the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, to be specific, as soon as September. And one thing people have pitched is, why not wait instead for that full approval before mandating the shot? So that could push things back a little bit further. I think we'll see this um, be somewhat of a patchwork of policies across all 50 states. We're already seeing that, of course, um, play out with masks. But you could see some of the early and more competent states in terms of vaccination come out and say, we need kids, at least in that adolescent population where we've already seen an authorization. Um, get the shot going into the fall school year. So, you know, one, one thing that really feels like uh, um, they're leading by, by, but from behind here is the, the FDA, Riley. And, and it seems like they're kind of, they've been slow walking a bit on the, on the regular for, for adults front. And, and then that becomes almost um, uh, pivotal for, for uptick of uh, vaccinating younger kids. What's going on with the FDA? Why is it taking so long? So the FDA is saying they've expedited the process for that 16-plus cohort and that we could know as soon as September, really, whether or not that group is going to get a full approval. And U.S. health officials, all the way up to Biden himself, are really hopeful that that's going to sway hesitant adults. Now, with kids, they need six months of safety data. So you can't actually even apply for this biologics license. That's what it's called in technical Mm -hmm. terms until you have that six months. So we're going to see it take a little bit of time before Pfizer even makes the approach to get a full approval for younger children. Um, What can they do in the meantime, again, is just turn to those community um, organizers, activists, those at the grassroots level. Riley Griffin is healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News. Uh, Riley's story is on the cover of the new issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine. It's available on newsstands and at Bloomberg.com slash Business Week. Also joining us, Joel Weber, editor of the magazine. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. We'll be very fluid. Right now, we work, uh, and it's on a, you know, daily for the team that's working on it, but weekly from a leadership team. We're looking at making sure we understand the semiconductor situation, and we're allocating uh, chips to our highest demand to take care of our customers, and also the vehicles that are in plants that are capacity-constrained, and that is especially our full-size trucks and SUVs. That was GM CEO Mary Barra saying the company will be very fluid on allocating trips and is currently focused on the highest demand vehicles. She appeared with Bloomberg's David Weston earlier today on Bloomberg Surveillance. All right. When we talk autos, Tim, uh, it's best to get an expert. And we're talking about Kevin Tiny, and he's a senior senior autos analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us on the phone from uh, New Jersey. When I say he's an auto guy, he's the guy that's got like grease under his fingernails he's always taking apart cars putting them back together nice like when he bought his house he's basically said i bought a garage that had a house attached to it so that's kind of you know he's a real auto geek evan uh so kevin so the gm stock is down nine percent today what gives 
Yeah, I, I, I'm assuming it's uh, probably more, a t- in my eyes, an indictment of what consensus was than really where GM is at. Um, you know, maybe that, that little bearish tone uh, during the call, but, you know, I don't think that's that's something that's specifically to GM, right? You're still navigating um, supply constraints, you know, chip shortage, whatever it winds up being, but... I got to tell you, you know, some of the pricing data, the margin data is is pretty incredible. The kind of thing that the industry has probably worked decades to get to uh, is kind of where it is now. And now it's a it's an, a matter of managing it beyond uh, once we get out of, you know, post pandemic, post uh, chip shortage, how they manage the business. How, how do they do that? How do they navigate through the chip shortage? Like, what are they doing right now? Because we heard earlier in the year that car companies were even making changes to, to how they were uh, building cars because they couldn't get the right chips. Right. And, and I'll tell you, Tim, you know, one of the things that's incredible, and I actually have to go back after this call to check the numbers again, but, you know, I think Mary Barra talked about it. The focus is on the, the you know, highest revenue and profit contributing vehicles, and that's going to be full-size SUVs and pickup trucks. But I was looking at the numbers for the U.S., for the second quarter, and this really jumped out at me. The average car, coupe and sedan for General Motors, was $42,000 in the U.S., right? And all that means is that, and now granted, there was only 40,000 units sold in the quarter, but that's a $9,000 increase from the first quarter, sequentially, which basically says that all the low-margin, you know, low-priced vehicles are out of the mix, um, the like the best-selling vehicle was Chevrolet Bolt at like forty thousand dollars, and then you have the second best-selling was Corvette at eighty-two thousand dollars, <laughs> and we're seeing this across all the automakers. You know, Ford also Mustang is the best-selling car. You know, so you're talking about car prices. You know, as in terms of average transaction, that are near where trucks are now because you don't have any of that low profit margin stuff that was being made simply to hit corporate average fuel economy or emissions targets. Are we going to ever? Is it is the industry just going to snap back to pre-pandemic levels in terms of inventories, in terms of incentives? And I mean, because there's really this is the worst time to be out looking for a car. Yeah. And and the short answer is no. I I don't think any automakers, at least our domestic guys, right, if you had. You know, if you look at a Toyota or a Subaru or even a Honda in the United States, you know, they their inventory levels historically are way more manageable than what the old Fiat Chrysler, now Stellantis or Ford or General Motors run out. So if you figure 60 days historically is considered manageable, our domestic guys would typically be in the 70s to 80s range and you know the 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 high volume asian brands would be closer to 50 days so i think i think what you know ford and gm have talked about is getting and staying consistently in that 50 to 60 day range um you know so that's going to support pricing that's going to support margins uh, and get them all discounting now paul is like less than one percent typically it's six right so you could walk into a dealership and assume six percent off the sticker price right off the bat now it's less than one yeah just the demand is there the supply isn't right right um hey kevin we learned yesterday that GM is going to idle some North American truck plants next week due to chip shortages. Mike McKee pointing out that usually automakers shut plants for retooling during July, but it's been almost forgotten because of, of distortions that we've seen during the pandemic. How should we read into that move? 
Yeah, that, that would be for the model year changeover, Tim. You know, you would see, uh, you know, just machinery updates and, and, and new processes put in place during that summer shutdown. That's normal. I, you know, as you said, this is a different kind of world and a different kind of year. So I'm, I'm not sure it's, it's due to that. Um, you know, if you have – and it's like this with any – part in a vehicle, right? If you don't have lug nuts, you don't have a car, right? right? If you don't have a steering wheel, if you don't have a chip, you can't finish it and you can't drive it. So um, so this is probably a little bit more of that. It's probably only a week or so, um, you know, and then the focus will be back on, on the truck side. So, you know, there's, there's no doubt we're talking about most manufacturers, retail are in the 20 to 30 days supply, which is just crazy. So um, I think they'll get it back closer to that 50, 60, but I don't think we're getting back to 80. Kevin, just real quick, 30 seconds. Uh, Tim and I saw that the New York car show is canceled, I guess, because of COVID. Is that a big deal for the auto Uh, industry? Well, for car guys, it is. I mean, I'm in Detroit in another week or two. You know, Pebble Beach is coming up. And I think really all the car guys are really looking to get back out there and get together and congregate. Uh, So I was kind of I was taken aback by that. And I'm hoping that doesn't set off the string for, you know, the other events that are scheduled already through the, you know, through the second half of the year. What's what's the material impact on, on companies, though? Because this is a time where the companies show media what their cars are, right? It's not that big of a deal. They've been able to survive without them. Sure, yeah, and, and it is just that. And New York was mostly, had become the luxury show, and California is mostly uh, the import show, and Detroit is the domestic show. So yeah, not probably not a huge uh, impact to the bottom line. But I gotta say, it's fun to go to. Sure. Yeah, yeah that's a fun <laughs> one. Yeah, I've gotten to go a few times, it's a great one. Kevin Tynan, Senior Autos Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us from Bloomberg Intelligence headquarters in Princeton, New Jersey, talking all things GM and autos. Hey, Paul, um, $6.65 billion. <laughs> I saw that number. How does that sound to you? That sounds like, you know, the GDP of a, you know, (laughs) relatively small country, but Uh, it's not. It's not. It's in fact, Elon Musk's uh, compensation uh, in the year 2020 as CEO of of Tesla. And the outsized compensation that Elon Musk saw first awarded to him a few years ago is increasingly uh, hitting other companies and the top folks at other companies. Anders Mellon, the wealth reporter at Bloomberg News, writes about that. In a story out this morning, he joins us now in the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. I, I, you notice I said compensation, full mm-hmm. compensation. I didn't say salary uh, <laughs> because this is not his salary. This is his total compensation. That's right. Take us through how this has worked because it's a, it's a little complicated than, you know, just getting paid six billion dollars, uh, <laughs> you know, 24 times a year. Yes, nobody gets that in bi-weekly paychecks, right? Uh, what happens is that you get awarded large chunks of equity. CEOs of publicly traded companies mostly get paid in equity. And the special thing about equity is that it rises in value, especially when we're in a bull market, which we've been in for quite some time, except for a brief dip last year. Um, then the pay ends up being worth quite a bit. Elon got a ton of money three years ago, and that's ended up being worth just, you know, eye-popping amounts, like you said, GDP of a small country almost. So I like in your story, uh, uh, one of the folks you chatted with uh, cited something, the great man theory. Mm-hmm. I mean, what is the great man theory, and how does it how does it relate to compensation? So in this context, it really goes back to the idea um, that companies increasingly are staking larger and larger pay packages on just the CEO 
saying that we're gonna issue this big award that will pay the CEO hundreds of billions, hundreds of millions of dollars, or even a billion or two, if the company triples in size and value, or you know, grows in size and value yep. by tenfold, and just staking that on on the ceo sort of gets the idea that it's it's just you stake it on one guy and and that's being done to an extent that we haven't really seen before what do shareholders think of this they are largely fine with it um even though some investors are out or many investors have been out there saying that you know economy has to work for everybody it's important that companies take care of their employees uh, but when push comes to shove when it comes to ceo compensation sort of the mantra that rules among investors is that if there's performance it's okay with pay if there's a lot of performance it's okay with a lot of pay and if you take that logic and draw it to an extreme then it doesn't become so crazy to pay a ceo a few billion dollars if the market value increases by say a hundred billion because it's just a small share of it right the crazy part ends up being when you're paying one person this even though he might be in charge of a company that employs ten thousand people or a hundred thousand people or half a million people and that's what the critics are taking aim at because that goes to the whole income inequality but really wealth inequality uh, it, it just shines a light on it and we see it every year when proxy statements are filed and we see what some of these folks are getting paid but right. some of these pay packages that you cite in your story they're these are new these are like you know 100 million dollar grants of options yes. you know that can just explode in value and it's not just the founders that get these these right. are just hired guns that's what's new i think yes yeah you, it's, these are people on the payroll they're hired help to put it colloquially <laughs> i'm i'm wondering what happens in a bear market and how this changes do ceos start coming and saying actually i'd rather get compensated differently or so is we, that just you don't get hired you don't get to stay ceo if you don't think the company's stock is going to go higher so we got a small window of into that last year when the coronavirus took hold of the, the nation and the markets went haywire and the outlook for many companies changed pretty drastically. Uh, obviously, bonus targets and three-year plans for share payouts all of a sudden were obsolete and, and didn't reflect reality. Um, if a board then would be um, teetotal when it comes to pay for performance and saying that this is ironclad we're not changing anything then a lot of CEOs w would have lost out on a lot of money what more than 300 companies ended up doing was to tweak performance targets or issue new awards to make CEOs whole or give them extra opportunities to make their money so that doesn't necessarily reflect what every company did but it's at least more than 300 companies did it so that should give you some idea of the willingness to perhaps. reprice the options. That's what you ask for. You walk in <laughs> and ask your compensation committee to reprice my option package. I think I got please. my media review coming up, so I might <laughs> yeah. do that. <laughs> and, it, and, and, and I understand right. I mean, if, if, if this is someone has value, the board generally is going to cave. Yeah, see and, that. and Anders, just in, in the 15 seconds we have left, do we see this spreading even more than it already has? What we don't see is any counterforce that would yeah. stop it. Um, I have I have yet to see that. All right. Well, Anders Mellon, wealth reporter for Bloomberg News. He's with us in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Uh, his new story, Elon Musk's Outrageous Moonshot Award, catches on across America. It has Elon Musk's numbers 
in there in addition to nine other CEOs, uh, how much they got paid last year. And it is quite a lot of money. Anders, thanks so much for joining us. Tucker, thank I'm you. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right. We have the markets pulling back just slightly, but let's face it, folks. We are at or near all-time highs. We have a Fed that, despite some comments by Fed Vice Chair Clarida about potential tapering some point in in the future, we have about as accommodative Fed as you could ever want. We've got <laughs> strong earnings coming through. So what do you do in this market? Let's check in with a professional, Michael Sheldon. He's executive director and chief investment officer of Hightower RDM Financial Group. He joins us on the phone from Westport, Connecticut. So, Michael, I've got a friend. He goes by the name of Tom Keen. I'm trying to get him into the market, but he just keeps missing some entry points. <laughs> what are you doing with your clients right here, right now? Well, I think it's important. We remain generally constructive in our longer-term outlook for the markets, and we think the tailwinds for that are continued growth in consumer and business spending, along with rising corporate profits. Uh, back in March of this year, the estimate was that this year corporate profits would rise about 25%, and now they're up to about 42% on a year-over-year -year basis. And the estimates are for continued growth over the next couple of years, although more moderate than we're seeing this year. So I think ultimately we're likely to see a handoff from monetary and fiscal policy that's what's really helped juice the economy and gotten things going to one that's fueled by the private sector and we clearly could see a few bumps in the road on in an average year since 1980 for example the we've seen an intra-year drawdown of about 14 percent uh, while the markets have still finished positive about three quarters of the time so over overall we remain generally positive and there will be some pullbacks along the way, and that's something investors need to be prepared for. How big of a pullback should we be prepared for? Are we talking, I mean, something like 5%, or are we talking like 20%? I think, I think 20%, which is the higher level you just mentioned, is, more, is less likely, excuse me, because that's, the kind of, that's really what you, what you sort of associate with a bear market, and bear markets typically really only happen if there's some kind of exogenous event or when we're having a recession. And right now, the economic data overall is just generally pretty positive, so, I mean, over the past 12 months, for example, we've had several pullbacks of anywhere between about 4% and 9%. So something in that range wouldn't be unheard of. And, again, just keep in the back of your mind that since 1980, since 1980 we've had an average intra-year drawdown of about 14%. So that shouldn't be – I mean, that's also a possibility as well. All right, Michael. So there is a debate in the market between those folks that are, you know, sticking with the tried and true growth stories, the Apples, the Amazons, the one that uh, got them to this party. And some folks really over the last year have really done well with a rotation trade into some more cyclical names, maybe the banks, maybe some energy, maybe some small caps. Where are you in that discussion, that debate? So that, that's a good question right now. So we've definitely seen some rotation in the market. Um, growth has really generally outperformed value for much of the past decade or so. Only every once in a while, maybe for a quarter or a month or so, has, grow has value outperformed growth. Same thing with foreign. The U.S. has outperformed foreign markets for much of the past decade. And over the past, 
uh, six to 12 months or so, we had almost the perfect cocktail. We had a rise in global growth. We had a rise in corporate profit expectations, a rise in interest rates and inflation. And that gave us a pretty good bump up in value stocks and foreign stocks actually started to do better. So now, over, just over the past few months, because of the growth in the Delta variant, uh, because of the rise of inflation, um, combined with the decline in interest rates, as investors worry about potential growth, we've started to see a rotation back into growth. So our thinking is right now that we're sort of in this transition, and we think you really want to have a barbell approach, meaning you want to have broad exposure to a range of sectors. Uh, we do think you want to have growth and you want to have broad exposure at this point. I, I got to tell you, Michael, uh, Paul Sweeney yesterday talking with Dave Wilson, uh, they kind of had me feeling like a little FOMO with the, the way the markets have been uh, in recent years and not just in recent years, but really for the past decades. few decades. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you made a mention of the Fidelity Contra Fund and uh, just throwing yep. money in your 401k <laughs> in there and looking brilliant. And it makes me think, you know, it's, it, for me and my peers, people who are sort of midway through their careers, how we're how we should be thinking about growth and about uh, how we should be thinking about realistic growth, especially given what we've seen in the last few decades and whether or not that's sustainable. Well, that's a good point. Um, in the current year right now, we're forecast to see approximately about 6.5 GDP growth, which is the fastest growth we've seen in a number of decades. And the reasons behind that are because of the incredible fiscal and monetary support that we've seen to help the economy, first to sort of get out of the downturn early last year, but, but the monetary policy has continued as the Fed buys $120 billion of, of bonds every month, which will start to slow. Uh, for next year, for reference, the GDP estimate is about 4.1%. That's still about twice the average of the past 10 years or so. So I think ultimately growth should start to slow somewhat. There are some variables. For example, if productivity growth uh, can uh, rise above historic levels due to things like technology uh, and disruptive technology, that could help increase the rate of GDP growth. But ultimately, uh, because of all the debt that's out there, economic growth will probably start to slow again after um, strong growth this year and next year. Michael, you mentioned some international. I think that's probably an area we probably don't talk enough about. How do you think about allocating capital to international markets, whether they be developed or uh, developing emerging markets? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, you know, as, as registered investment advisors, we have to look at our asset allocation on a regular basis. And we've generally been overweight the U.S. versus far in the past decade, year, which has been a pretty good decision. But um, these kind of things go in cycles. And historically, uh, after a period of outperformance, foreign markets start to perform better. So looking at the environment right now, foreign markets have more attractive valuation levels. They have higher dividend yields. And there's a, a variety, a large number of companies outside the U.S., which U.S. companies would gain access to by investing in foreign stocks versus U.S. stocks. So the trade really hasn't worked that well so far this year, especially in emerging markets. But we think investors who have underweighted foreign stocks for much of the past decade or so should start to take a look at their allocation. And, and if the global recovery continues and the, the Delta variant starts to recede, uh, that should provide a bit of a tailwind for foreign markets um, in the period ahead. Is that, is that an if to you or a when? Uh, we think it's a when, not an if. Okay. What, 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 how concerned should we be or how concerned should investors be about the spread of the Delta variant, not just in the United States but around the world? Yeah, I think generally speaking, um, the developed markets around the world have obviously had more vaccinations, and the emerging markets and other parts of the world have had uh, less access to, to uh, vaccinations. 
the Delta variant is certainly one of our near-term concerns, and that along with rising inflation and worries about when the Fed will start to remove some of its policy accommodations, along with the fact interest rates have gone down, and a lot of, there are a lot of expl- explanations for why interest rates have started to go down. Um, but those sort of factors altogether could lead to maybe a speed bump or a pullback mm-hmm. as we head into the August, September, October period. But I think more importantly, we think the bigger picture is that economic cycles right. tend to last a period of years as, a period, as opposed to a period of months or quarters. Michael Sheldon, Executive Director and Chief Investment Officer at Hightower RDM Financial Group, joining us from Westport, Connecticut. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.